I was speaking in London this at the end of October, and I had the delightful privilege of meeting a whole crowd of the difference makers that we, we have a group on WhatsApp. And part of the difference makers is Daniel Ospina, who's with me today. He's an enormous amount of fun. We just, we just had a lovely conversation. So we're here today to kind of spread that conversation into your world uh, because we're going to be talking about a whole range of things, including governance and organizational design and anything else we feel like that, that comes up. This is the Insight to Action podcast. My name is Donna Jones. I'm your host. I do work in the area of decision-making, advanced decision-making skills, working with uh, intuition and rebalancing. I also do work with, with uh, leadership, uh, conscious leadership, so that you can navigate more effectively what's going on in the world today. And it's where big picture meets personal skills. Daniel, I'm so glad to have you on the program. Let's have some fun. Let's start by by talking about the work you've been doing because we started chatting when you and I first started chatting. We started chatting about different kinds of governance models, and you know, democracy is going through this whole tumultuous time of of sorting itself out. And actually, power is you know, what's the relationship with power? And if we look at the news reports on on how power is used, what have you been testing out lately? What have you been up to? Sure. Um, first, Donna, thank you very much for having me. Uh, as you mentioned, it was a really enjoyable conversation, so I'm very happy to be here and continue with this. So uh, lately, I've been I've been looking a lot into how organizations are changing uh, now that the landscape is so fluid. And I was speaking at some some time ago with the CEO of this large healthcare organization. And we were discussing team performance and he was saying, yes, I have all these consultants, all these people coming at me, all these researchers saying we want to help you improve team performance. And he was like, that's great. Let me go to my organization, find a team that needs some help uh, and I'll connect you guys and you can improve how that team is working. And he'll go, he'll find a team. And then by the time he went and, sp- and spoke with this other person, the team didn't exist anymore. It was gone. Like the, the people who were part of that team, they had been disbanded uh, and they had formed another different team with other different people as well with the experts or, or working together with people from other organizations and so on. And he was very conflicted because he was saying, how can I improve the way my people are working if no one is staying in the same place long enough for me to figure out how to do that? What, are, what we're seeing is now that even the boundaries of what is within an organization and what's outside an organization is becoming increasingly hard to define. And, and we see that through, through employee turnover, where people change jobs very frequently, but we see it as well through the way we work together with other organizations and the co- very complex mix of expertise that we need to deliver projects. Kind of like starting to explore that idea, one of the, the most recent things that, that really caught my attention and one of the projects I enjoy the most was when now working to develop the, the governance structure for, for a community. So I've been, I've been involving in communities uh, increasingly over, over the last few years, first as a participant, then started my own community and had to figure out how to do that. And that was mainly different networks of people who have a who have a shared identity and a, and a shared belonging and the purpose can vary widely of why they come together uh, but the fact is that we have more and more of those and I, I will argue that that's mostly happening because or or local traditional communities have disappeared uh, and now with the the advancement of communication technology and transport technology we can create these different mixes uh, of how we relate to people and how we interact but the biggest question is when we create these these things, these communities, 
how do we how do we govern them? How how do we make decisions? How do we relate to one another? And and it's very much the the parallel of what's happening with within like more traditional organization and businesses that have this fluid mix of people and suddenly need to figure out how to deal with constant change, how to deal with people having a range of different priorities uh, and need, and things they need to accomplish at any given point, being because they're working on three different projects and trying to balance as well having a life outside work uh, and their own personal and professional growth and all these conflicting tensions. And then trying to navigate these organizations where there is deep specialists, uh, but sometimes there are so many silos that that knowledge is not used properly, is not leveraged, uh, and we end up having a very reduced impact of what we could be having. Like it's, you know, when, when we come together, the dream is always to think that we are more than the sum of the parts, but in practice, that's very, very difficult to accomplish. So lately, I, I started working with one of these communities. It's called uh, Sandbox. It's, it's a very dear community to me, which uh, I've been part for for some time now. And we're having a sort of a, of a leadership crisis where we, we're coming from a very traditional structure of having a secretary, a chair and a treasurer. And that stopped being appropriate for the community because it was very, very difficult to know to which degree they were allowed to make decisions on behalf of everyone and to which degree everyone should have an opinion. And then you take the, the issues of participation that is very much akin to what happens in countries is you have what percentage of the population is actually going to make a vote that is going to affect everyone. And how do you convince other people that they should go and vote or they should give their opinion, that they should get informed and involved in, say, politics, or shouldn't they? And actually, it's a better use of their time to carry on with their lives and say, if they are a scientist working on cancer research, should you say, oh, you should spend less time doing cancer research and more time doing politics? So it's, it's kind of like a fundamentally complex question, but is something that we have every day in business is, should you be working on, say, delivering the solution for the client, for our clients, or should you be figuring out how do we arrange the different groups of people to work together? And so we, we have gone from a, a very centralized, very top-down model from the industrial era where we separated the, the thinkers and the, and the doers to all these new trends of self-management. But when we still come with all the self-management, holocracy, sociocracy, uh, till organizations, all these different explorations that are being done, quite frequently the, the question is, how do we ensure we're not missing anything anything essential? How do we ensure that there is someone looking at the, at the big picture? So there is different answers there, but I was particularly interested to figure out what would be the answer for these very, very large groups of people that are to a degree democratically owned or where everyone should be allowed to, be, to have a voice partially because they are there, because they can be shareholders or just because they are members and participants of these communities. So, so we started uh, exploring how we could do this and, and now we are, we're in this process where the, I, I take in a lot from, from the work that, that was done by, by earlier systems thinkers, by cyberneticians, that they, especially uh, by uh, a professor called Stafford Beer, that he identified five essential functions that any system need to perform. And when I was looking at these functions and I start 
playing with a little bit on that from, throughout my consultancy work uh, and helping different teams to use that to improve their performance or more organizations to understand if they weren't missing anything essential, if they weren't overlooking some of the, the key activities that they needed to deliver. It suddenly struck me that the, the way we have been thinking about, about power, this whole centralization versus decentralization paradox or contradiction or tension, if you like, where you always need to do a bit of both, and, or at least there is always like benefits to each. So you always try to make trade-offs, but it occurred to me at that point that we were, we were having that, that problem because we're thinking of power as being a single thing like uh, decision-making authority over everything. Uh, well, in fact, the, when we look at or throughout history, even like the way or earlier colony or, or earlier settlements, sorry, were established, there was a division of power and that division of power has been prevalent throughout our whole society and some of our most stable institutions, they sustain that division of power. So for example, in... In tribes, you have the warrior chief who's in charge of very administrative affairs, who's there or taking care to protect the tribe, like wage war if necessary. And then on the other hand, you have the shaman or the elder who takes care of the identity. And he's, and he's an elder precisely because he's someone who has lived throughout many events of this community. So he understands the history. He understands why certain things have been decided to be one way and not another. And he can pass on that knowledge. Well, the warrior chief is probably younger and more in the prime of his physical strength. Then as we as we advance through history in the in the Middle Ages, we have that separation in between the Pope and the Emperor, or the archbishops and kings, where one of them is in charge of ju- of judging the affair the, the spiritual affairs or about morality and a way of defining what is according to the values of these of this society, of this community. And then, on the other hand, the, the emperor who's organizing the, the economic and military affairs. Moving forward, then we arrive to, to governments who have the, a division in free powers, in the legislative, the judicial and the executive. And those, that division of power is now recognized to be a fundamental future of any modern democracy. On the other hand, in the private sector, we're still going through this very much sand clock uh, kind of shape the hourglass, and and we have uh, many people, be it shareholders or or members, uh, that delegate all their power to a tiny, tiny minor- minority, even to a single person, a CEO, who then has to figure out how to delegate all the power again to this whole bunch of people. There isn't that creative tension. There isn't that any any of those stabilizing futures features that they, that we have seen in so many of our historically robust organizations. So, so now what, we are, what I'm starting to explore with this, with this community and increasingly with other organizations is ensuring that we can create some of these other functions that can have other more collective power or more, more centralized or more decentralized according to the to the nature of the of the function that is trying to to be performed so for example when we're talking about implementing changes we need to have a certain level of centralized direction but then we need collective buy-in so we use a process that starts with a small group that does intensive research 
and then starts progressively to involve more and more people, creating a movement that grows. On the other hand, when we're talking about identity, we go first with the collective and, and try to understand what are the what are the practices that are already happening? What is this culture about? And what is it telling us about the way we work here? And then slowly try to refine that. So it's very different ways to looking at the decentralized, decentralized according to the to the nature of power, instead of trying to compress everything into into a single flat layer. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And, and these are important questions. I think that one of the things that I, I loved about our initial conversation and this one as well is that it touches on stuff that I spent the whole summer working on, which is what does a global, different global governance model look like? How do we make the decisions for, for the eco ecological health of the planet? How do we make the decisions for the social health of, of the planet and restore inequalities and, and bring, bring, bring it back to systemic health on every layer? And, and of course, some of those things that you've raised touches on that because the question, you know, where does a nation have the room to self-determine its future? Like, for example, in Catalonia right now, we're watching that dynamic. And vis-a-vis -vis the bigger questions of where do we all need to be thinking together? And I think what it does is it demands from us a whole lot more of who we are as humans. And, and it, it requires not just a resort, you know, a turn, turn to technology and say, let, let's use technology to augment human, which you can do. Certainly, certainly humanity could, could use some help in, those, in that <laughs> regard, particularly with respect to bias and some of these ingrained cognitive functions that can really be problematic. But those are the things that I think we're addressing now is, is how to work with who we are as a species and how do we work with who we are collectively so that we can optimize the result, get the best pot and the most positive outcome available. What I really love about what you're saying is that is, is not only about using technologies for technology's sake, as in technology can amplify many things, but is unless there is a, a deeper reflection, that tends to go sideways. And, and we see that in, in digital transformations where we try to implement a new tool, but if there isn't the redesign of the actual businesses process, business processes behind, that digital transformation fails. And we see that then with the, the social media or the AI, that unless we actually take care of looking at more the systemic layer of what is generating there, what are the human impulses, if people have a side of them where they are willing to, to compete very aggressively to obtain something and you take away anything that fosters collaboration, then you will end up with a super competitive environment. On the other hand, you can also encourage uh, collaboration, but it, that always demands us, why do we actually do it? What's the human impulse? What's the, the thing that is intrinsically ourselves that pushes us to go in either direction? And it's only for understanding that that we can design the technology that takes us on a, on a positive course. I think that's where Umberto Maturana's work was really significant in terms of, of understanding the power of language and, and just the natural tendency for humans to, to collaborate. It, it is a natural thing, but when you put too many structures in place, you actually have to take down. And I appreciate what you're saying earlier about silos as well, because I can see the silo effect happen and it doesn't matter whether it's in an organization or it could be in it could be in a in a community as large as a city where everyone's siloed and they 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 siloed for one reason or another but they they can't cross collaborate because of all these mental barriers they have in their minds so yeah very relevant daniel let's talk a bit about your background because uh i think <laughs> the fun parts of our conversation in london was how you introduced yourself so i know we're we're uh 
halfway into the conversation here, but let, let's talk a little bit about your background. Yeah, sure. I, I think that um, perhaps it can be a little bit hard to, to center a conversation over a single topic because I, I tend to see so many of them as being connected. I'm, and I'm quite often more interested in the mixes and the, the overlaps than, than in a single thing. And that kind of kind of comes from from my background itself. Like I, I, us, I usually say it a, a bit as a joke, but the, the way my, my parents met is my, my mother's an anthropologist and uh, from Belgium origin, she went to, to Colombia and lived in the mountains for 10 years with the indigenous tribes studying them, like actually living in the mountains for 10 years. And my father, who's a doctor and had absolutely nothing to do with the topic, I guess one day someone told him that these cultures were disappearing and he found that to be terrible and really wanted to do something to preserve that knowledge and that culture that was literally being ext extinguished for the future for generations and he came up with the idea of doing this photography book and he started telling everyone oh we should do a photography book about the indigenous tribes they're fantastic it's super interesting we should do this book and and the first reaction of the people around is like i think you had a little bit too much red wine let's just chill out and, and we'll and we'll talk about it tomorrow but then the next day he kept on going about it and the next day he kept on going about it to all his friends and eventually someone said well you know what i i met this expert you guys should meet and so, so my father went, met, met the expert, and they, they started talking about the book. They got really excited about the book, and they never made the book, and instead they made me. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, it shows, you know, your background shows in terms of the depth you bring to, to what you do, because, you, you know, that, that is something I think we've talked about before, but it's that place now where we can't keep going for quick fixes on process. We have to dive deep into both the conversations ourselves and, and really be much more reflective and at the same time, much more insightful about, about how we choose where we go next. So thanks for that. I appreciate that. It says a lot, you know, just the diversity and, and that combination. You have been teaching at Say Business School. And one of the questions I found on your website intrigued me, and I thought we'd talk about it a bit. And that is, what are the counterintuitive effects of complexity on mega projects of over 100 million pounds? whatever that translates into in your local currency. The money is not as important as the counterintuitive effects of complexity. Tell us more. Yeah, so this is uh, this is an idea that came that came over dinner when when I had the chance to to be to meet one of the professors at the at the Said Business School who who happens to direct this program. And and so we we decided to do to do a workshop to to help the students on one side learn about systems design about how to how different services and the background operations can work and so on and give them a, a little bit of theoretical grounding on those on those areas uh, and as well like they receive some a lot of the theory throughout the this week of the program that is the systems week uh, but we wanted to to take that a little bit further and ground that theory on on practice and so they could actually see what the counterintuitive effects of complexity are. So what we did is we got them to cook. So we have 60 senior executives in a room. We divide them, we div we divide them in groups and they all have to design a plate of food and then pr prepare it for their, for their colleagues. And they have to do that in an insanely short period of time. Uh, and we really go into the details of what designing a plate of food means, not only as oh, I want to put this main component with this garnish, 
but actually what are the trade of, the, of, of that and what's the overall experience and how do you then start handling variety? Say if someone has an allergy, how do you link that together with the organization and how do you link that with the way you're producing in the back and how do you especially get 20 senior people to figure out how they're going to work together and deliver a full, a full design in, tw- in 30 minutes? So what we see is that as they start approaching this challenge, because it's something they have never done before, most of them, uh, well, I mean, maybe one or two have cooked at home, but none of them has ever worked in hospitality or actually figure out how a restaurant operates. They come from very different industries. So they tend to revert to their more natural and intrinsic leadership styles. And so we have sometimes some groups where there is a, a strong leader that emerges and that leader will start directing people and saying, oh, guys, don't worry. I love cooking. I really know what I'm doing. I have a really strong vision of how this should work. Uh, Just you do that, you do that, you do that. And they arrive to a design really fast. Then they go into production. And when you we film them as they are working, actually, and they look very, very organized. Everyone kind of has their place, knows what they're doing. And then they go and serve serve the dish to the others. So that's one type of group. Then we have the opposite one, where we don't get a strong leader that emerge. There is lots of discussion, and it really looks confusing at the beginning. Uh, and then they go uh, in, into the back, and as well, there is like this confusion. There is usually more people doing the same task than there needs to be. But then they they adapt a little bit, somewhat like through, halfway through the exercise. There's quite often, some people will come out and they'll change tasks, uh, or, or they will reorganize. And then they, they eventually delivered the dish. And then at the end, we asked the people, the, those that were in the, at the dinner table that couldn't see anything of what was happening behind the scenes, how the results were. And, and now we run it two years in a row. We're about to, to do it for the third year. What we can see is that the, the groups that one will normally call disorganized or messy usually make the best food. And, they, and those at the dinner table, they have no idea that, that, that it was actually that messy. There might have been perhaps been a tiny delay, uh, but they only start thinking about it once we explicitly ask them, like, what were the problems? What were the negative sides? Otherwise, they don't realize they're there in their own experience. So that helps to illustrate one of the most important principles of, of complexity is that when we look very close up, things can seem very, very messy. But if we take a step back, there is actually patterns that emerge. And if, unless we do that, we can quite often try to micromanage the situation and try to add a lot of efficiency in detriment of effectiveness. So in the, in the groups that are more messy, what's actually happening, those patterns, is that there is more lateral communication. They, every, everyone feels more empowered to make decisions, so they adapt during the exercise. So even though they start with a handicap in organization at the initial stages, when they go and try to implement and produce this design, they very quickly are capable of finding a way to optimize in their way to, to execute. They do so fast enough that the, the customers or their colleagues outside waiting for the plate of food, they don't even realize is happening. And because more ideas have been, have been pitched in, uh, they have had a, a higher chance of of getting more people to try the dish before. So they are doing, they have a higher tendency to go into prototyping and testing the idea instead of just following one person's vision and everyone assuming that they know what they're doing and the results are there. So it kind of shows those kind of things. Then as well, um, 
Another great thing that we had on the first year was when they decided to, to set one of the groups decided to separate in between the, the waiters and the cooks. So some of them were going to put the food on the plate and the other half were going to be uh, taking that food to the table. And as soon as they got this division and they went there and there was these, this wall with a big window in between throughout which they passed the food from the kitchen to the, to the front of house. And immediately after they organized that way, they start throwing a, a couple jokes to each other, a bit of harmless banter. And after about of one minute of, of doing that, one of them as a joke decided to close the window on the other. And you go like, what's happening here? Like, what, what, what's this dynamic? I mean, of course, they're all colleagues. No one is under any terrible pressure. Like, if the meal doesn't work out, it's fine. No one is going to lose their job. Worst case scenario, they're going to have a cold plate of food. Like, it's not, you know, the stakes are low. And yet, there is already this rivalry happening. And it's just because we have created that psychological division of you are two different kinds of people that they immediately start feeling like they have somewhat to compete and somewhat to prove that they're better to each other. So for the, for the executives to see these kind of things happening very naturally gives them a very, a very powerful tool and, and a very concrete experience that they will remember then when they are in another novel situation to know that the moment you divide people and how you segment decision-making power, how you create those psychological definitions of who people are and who they are not, immediately has an impact on the way they behave. And so when you're trying to manage hundreds of people at the same time, this is very practical and useful knowledge. Although in that conversation, it can seem just very theoretical and lofty. Anytime you open up any of the pages of the business press, you'll see, you know, what are you going to do with these non-performers? Blah, blah, blah. Well, you might start by not labeling them as non-performers <laughs> because it has to do with that camp of these are high, perform high potentials, these are low performers and, and without any exploration, without any discovery, without any compassion or, or depth to the conversation. So it, it sort of touches on that aspect as well. Now, what conclusions did, did participants go, go home with after that experience? Well, you know, the, the most important thing is quite often for them to, to, to realize that they have all these frameworks that they learn throughout their career. And when they go into a, a novel situation like, like this one with a new group of people, they tend to revert to, to behaviors that they, don't even, they are not even aware they do. All of them, they know that prototyping and testing something is super important. They heard it a million times. It's been written in a million blogs. And yet when they go and do it, quite often, their reflex is not to prototype. The reflex is not to test the assumptions. The, the reflex is not to, to immediately start thinking, oh, everyone needs to have a, a moment to, to pitch in ideas or how do we create this more lateral communication? They revert to a top-down structure because it's easier, but it doesn't produce the best results. So for them to realize that they did that is very powerful for when they're again in a new situation and, and next time under probably a lot of pressure to take, have that like split second, second judgment and go like, oh, wait a second, am I making the same mistake I was doing before or have I learned from this experience? So it, in a way, it's a little bit of a sandbox to learn. And I think that's at, at the end why, why we kept it. But on the other hand, it's also really wonderful to, to, have, a, to have a lesson where everyone is, is drinking at the end, where they're sharing laughters 
uh, and you have these these group bonding and and it's fun and learning and and work should not be a pain when you're doing it right when you're when you're constantly learning you can have a lot of fun and have a great time and so it's been very well personally very 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 inspirational to see that we were we had the chance of making that happen because it was very much an accident like we had no idea if it was going to work or not uh, we came up we came up with a with a concept tried it out and and then the results were, were there so we we kept on going um, but it, it shows that these kind of stuff are possible and that you can really mix very random ideas sometimes with the most positive outcomes. One of my favorite quotes is Joseph Chilton Pierce, developmental psychologist, who said, play is the highest form of intelligence. It draws out the highest form of intelligence in, in humanity. And I thought that was really appropriate. And it totally fits the example you just, you just gave. I need to ask you one more question before we uh, wrap up. Because there's this lovely word on your site that I thought I have no idea what this means. You, you've been doing work with cross-modalism. Oh, sure, yeah. So, <laughs> so cross-modalism is uh, is an awkward one to define uh, because it's been so many things in so such a short period of time. But uh, at its core, is, is an idea, and and it's an it's an idea about how when we bridge silos, when we go beyond our comfort zone and actually spend time surrounding ourselves with with influences, with people who not only know different stuff than we do, in the way that most like interdisciplinary collaboration is thought of is, oh, they have different expertise. But we when we go beyond that to to people who who think differently, who have different preferences, who have different thought patterns, uh, as well as different pools of knowledge. And we spend enough time doing that, we can reframe a little bit the way we are seeing reality. And then when we come back to what whatever it is that we do, we can see it from a different perspective and come up with different ideas. I mean, reality is is infinitely complex. There is a million different ways you can frame and reframe each issue. And quite often we get ingrained into the same thought patterns and we, we jump to conclusions without even being aware that we're jumping to conclusions. I mean, it, at, at its most basic, that's what's happened. That's what happens on a, on a Sunday when you leave your house and suddenly you realize you're going toward work and you have no reason to go to work, but you just made that automatically without even being aware you're making a decision. Uh, and we're doing that all the time. And when we're tired, even more so, right? So, so cross-modelism started by, again, by another wonderful accident. It was, um, I, I had the chance of, of meeting a classical pianist who was very frustrated with the fact that his audience was disappearing as in literally dying. There is less and less people who appreciate classical music and the younger generations don't seem that interested and especially it's hard for them to get into this space and appreciate all the complexities that classical music has. And so he, he had this idea of using other disciplines to enhance classical music. And, and he realized that the, the food world had be, has been using music to enhance a, f a food experience forever. I mean, we have music in restaurants. Uh, the Baroque music was composed for the table. No one will listen to Baroque music anywhere outside a dinner. And so he, he thought that we could turn that upside down and, and through that research end up meeting, uh, well, end up arriving to, an, uh, to a lab in the experimental psychology department in Oxford. Uh, that's called the, the Cross-Model Research Laboratory. And it's a place where they study 
crossover in between the senses uh, and interactions in between senses. And there he, he met this guy who was a chef turned uh, aesthetic psychology researcher. He had been hanging out with the, with the psychologists in the lab and, and, and trying to understand how, how the way we see food affects the flavor. So if we present it differently, is it going to taste better or worse? And I, 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 I ran into these two, and they invited me to, to help them organize one of these events. We were designing this concert where the chef was going to cook food for the songs, uh, and then everyone will have the whole thing. And, and I thought that was absolutely wonderful. So we decided to, to do that on a, on a Sunday evening. Again, it was, it was very much uh, a hobby, something that you do to, to relax. But we started doing a few of those series and exploring that idea. And what the, the first thing that happened is that the people that came, uh, came to the event were way more interesting than the event itself. And, and I stumbled upon the, at work uh, at that time, uh, I, was, I was working in this research and development laboratory and trying to figure out how, a te- how this group of people should work together to come up with really innovative and interesting ideas. And, and this was for a company that had been tremendously successful in the past. It had launched a concept that had been rated at the, the best one in the industry for that year and so on. And so I was trying to understand how... How was the organization, the way we were working, different on the moments where great ideas came about and how were they different when not that much interesting new stuff was happening, where we weren't as creative? And I looked through a lot of the data that we had of how the team was composed, how the facilities were, what kind of processes we were using, and they all seemed to have some effects, but they didn't really have the, the correlation, they didn't have the impact that I was hoping for. Uh, it was still a little very random and a lot of noise in the data. So I, I was quite frustrated with it because I invested a lot of time, like three months, just looking into this. But then I stumbled upon a book. And as I was reading this book, what, what struck me and the, the insight was that actually all these large innovations, all these really interesting things that had happened in that lab, they all started with a similar story. And that story went on someone from from the company had met a person that has absolutely nothing to do with the industry they were operating. And they start chatting about something that had pretty much no relevance with their everyday work. And they had a few drinks, they had a few dinners, they kind of became friends. They start talking, but they start talking about the things that they were passionate about, the things that they were studying in their daily practice. So over time, those conversations start leading to, oh, this question, I don't know how that works in practice. So how about we do an experiment and try that out? And as they start doing experiments, just out of curiosity, just out of trying to, to expand their knowledge, to expand their understanding of the world, some of these experiments suddenly start having a relationship with what they, what they were doing, each of them in their own practice. And kind of two years down the line from the, their original meeting, from the first time they came in, in contact, they had come to this point where each of them had changed the way they were thinking. They had reframed their own mental models and they were coming up with this whole bunch of new innovative ideas that incorporated some of the insights from the other person. But in a way that was considerably deeper, more thorough, more original than than just kind of have, getting the two of them to have a five-minute conversation, to have a, a trend report, an inspirational day. Uh, it was very much about that internal transformation that had happened on the way they were conceiving the world that was allowing these new ideas to emerge. So this, uh, this R&D lab was, were, was operating in the, in the food industry. And at the beginning, it had been 
a chemist and physicist, but later on he had been uh, the someone quite high up in a perfume company that had brought a lot of knowledge about how perfumers were operating, that had changed the models. Later on he had been the an experimental psychologist that was studying perception, and it was that knowledge combined with the knowledge that has developed in this company that had led to those insights. So when I look back at what we were doing with cross-modelism of these funny, somewhat hedonistic events, and we were having a great time, the fantastic thing was that the crowd was extraordinarily diverse. We had a pianist, we had a chef, we had anthropologists, we had a finance directors, we had composers, uh, myself there. And it was like, oh, wait a second, we have all these group of people, they're all pitching in ideas, they're all discussing, they're all excited about what creating experiences mean. And, and that has become a common language to get them to go beyond their silos, to bridge artists with those working in academia, with researchers from academia, with designers, with entrepreneurs. They have found a way to communicate with one another, a common passion. And so we start looking for, for other common languages and decided to turn, well, to, to turn those, that name that we had given to the early performances that was cross-modelist and to the group that was involved that were cross-modelism, we decided to turn it into a community and a sort of platform to help bridge across those silos, across the, the art world, uh, across scientists working in academia and designers, entrepreneurs, those who, who have a, more of an outlook in industry and to delivering products and services and seeing how the different skills, the different mentalities, uh, as well the different interests that they all have can cross-pollinate and create something interesting. It's the classic expression of how to use diversity to pure advantage in terms of insights and innovation and, and just open f free form. Absolutely. And, and I think that the, 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 the point where sometimes we, we don't take, a, we don't fulfill our, our, our potential in those senses because we, we conceive diversity as something very shallow. We think only about gender and race and age. And I mean, those are, of course, they are important because if you discriminate by any of those, you're discriminating with the wrong criteria. So you're going to take away a lot of people who can have added fantastic ideas for no reason whatsoever. So of course you should include them, but we should go deeper and we, sh we should go further than that. It's really about those who think differently, who have a completely different attitude. If you take men, women, young, old, uh, poor, rich, but they are all thinking in the exact same way, they all have the same upbringing. I mean, I, kn I know at this point it kind of starts to, to fall apart, but if everyone is too similar, if everyone is too happy to be with each other, there is no tension, there is no conflict, there is no real exchange. We can so easily fall into just being comfortable and being surrounded with people that think like us uh, and that would like uh, whatever it is that we're posting and we like them back and we all feel fussy and loved inside, uh, but we're not, we're not learning really. Yeah, there's no catalyst. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you, Daniel. Absolutely brilliant. I'm going to ask you one more question, and this is completely random. But what's on your playlist, your music playlist? Oh, my. Um, so actually, right before starting this call, I was listening to Grammatic. Is, uh, they, they mix kind of like jazz with electronic music and some Latin influences. 
I'm not a connoisseur at all. I just have friends who know a lot more about music than I do. And, and I ask them, hey, what are you listening at? And, and I try it out. And over time, if I don't like it, I just move to the next suggestion. Yeah, no, that's a great way of doing it. That's why I asked, <laughs> because I, that's how I get all my music. Originally, I was getting it all from through my daughter. And now that I'm playing around with Spotify more, I'm, uh, I'm coming up with different selections. So it's, it's just it's great fun. Daniel, thanks so much for being on the program. Really appreciate it. Great conversation as always. And, and I hope our, our conversation has inspired uh, some more people who are listening to this to go deeper and, and not to uh, sort of just dive deep and, and play, play for some better designs and better solutions in the world. And it's been a pleasure. Organizational design, social systems design. That's what Daniel's all about. You'll find his more information on his website at conductal.org. And uh, he's also got a TED Talk as well. It's been my pleasure to bring Daniel to you. There's obviously lots of cool people in my network. I'm pretty grateful for that. Please uh, follow me on Twitter at EPDAWNA underscore Jones or on LinkedIn or on Facebook at From Insight to Action, uh, Facebook.fb, sorry, fb.com forward slash From Insight to Action. And if you like this program, please share it. Please like it. Please rate the uh, podcast. It all helps. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much for joining me to take a look at the new chapter in the Intelligence of the Cosmos with Thurman Laszlo's book there on Chapter 7, where we get into deep dynamics. We're talking about depth in this particular episode. And also, of course, there's decision-making for dummies. There's more, more work coming forward. So just finished coming back from a great, great set of workshops in Europe on decision-making, advanced decision-making skills, and hope to meet some of you uh, on other trips. So thanks again for your support and for listening in.